Before we start the show, I just wanted to let you know that the Politics Girl store is now officially open with our first capsule collection. To check it out, you can go to politicsgirl.com store. Politics Girl premium members will save 20% off the entire first purchase at checkout, and we plan to have more options as we move forward. As always, if you would like to support this project and the work that we do, please consider signing up to be part of the Politics Girl premium family. As a member, you'll get access to ad-free episodes of this podcast and a whole bunch of other perks. To subscribe or check out the options, check out the link in the show notes or go to politicsgirl.com premium. If you enjoy our content and think we offer something worthwhile, your help would be so welcome. That's politicsgirl.com premium. And now, on to the show. And welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. As we watch the mounting chaos surrounding the Republican presidential primary, I've been thinking about how crazy it is that the far and away frontrunner for the Republican nomination is the racist, misogynistic, lying ex-president who tried to stay in power against the will of the voters and is currently under multiple criminal indictments that include espionage and election interference. And the second place runner is a far right extremist governor who would clearly love nothing more than to rule the country as an authoritarian white Christian nationalist who answers to no one. These are the Republicans' top two guys. It makes you wonder what the other people in the race even think they're doing. To really get a sense of where we're at with these primaries and the Republican Party of today, we're going to be talking to Michael Steele, the former chairman of the Republican National Committee and now MSNBC contributor and host of the Michael Steele podcast. When Michael was elected Lieutenant Governor of Maryland in 2003 and made chair of the RNC in 2009, he was the first African American to hold either position. Under Michael's leadership, the Republican Party was deeply successful, breaking fundraising records and winning the biggest pick of House seats since 1938. Michael's commitment to grassroots organization and party building is credited with producing 12 Republican governorships and the greatest share of state legislative seats since 1928. The power the extremist elements of the Republican Party are working off today in many ways were built on the hard work of Michael and his team. So I'm not having on some left-wing operative to talk about right-wing politics. For goodness sakes, Michael is the author of Right Now, the 12-step program for defeating the Obama agenda. He knows right-wing politics, and it's his perspective we need right now. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, former Lieutenant Governor of Maryland, former Chair of the RNC, and host of the Michael Steele podcast, Michael Steele. Welcome, Michael. What's up? Hello, <laughs> my friend, gotta, my friend. I got to tell you how, how excited I am uh, to be on this podcast with you, first off, how excited I was to meet you at the Webby's for the first time. Uh, yes, I, I have been, you know, a fanboy from the very first moment I saw your your rant uh, on Twitter a couple of years ago, and I went, who the hell is this woman? <laughs> she just nailed in two minutes what I've been trying to get this idiots to understand for the last seven years, you know? Oh. And it just, you just spoke to to myself in such a way and, and a whole lot of people because you, you really, from the kitchen, right? From from the place where big decisions are made for families across America, you had a conversation um, that not a lot of Americans got to have, and you did it in a way in which they could feel like they were participating. So I just thanked you for that. And so when I met you, I was, folks, I just got to tell you, when I was like, Lee, I'm so excited to meet you. And of course, her husband was standing there looking at me like, oh, what you, what's your plan? What you doing? <laughs> What, yeah. Why are you getting yeah. close to my woman? All right. Yeah. 
<laughs> Honestly, I was thrilled to meet you too. And here's the thing. I have been such an, uh, you know, this is obviously a ringing endorsement for what I'm doing. So thanks a million. I really appreciate it. Show's over, you know. <laughs> but honestly, I was so happy to meet you too, because to me, you're one of the people I've always believed that we need conservative voices, progressive right. voices, liberal voices. And you're one of those people that we would not see eye to eye on, on a lot of things. Right. But that doesn't mean we don't both have a point of view, something that should be respected, that we don't come from the same place of people who really love democracy and want America right. to work the way it was supposed to. And so I've always admired and respected you, your work. You were very successful um, as an RNC, as the RNC chair, just so successful. And I yeah, admire my, yeah, my, my dim friends don't know whether to love or hate me for that. But. We, it's both. <laughs> Michael, it's both. It's that way. It's absolutely both. Yeah. Because I absolutely admire Leonard Leo, but I hate him. Right. And I absolutely admire you, but I also love you. So that's the thing. We met at the Webbies and then we both ended up on Steph Rule's 11th hour the next night. We were like two nights in a row. Like, look at us, you know? I know. <laughs> it's so fun. I know it is so fun. And I'm having you on the show today, obviously, to talk about your former party, right? I well, tell actually, people, correction. Your I'm party. still a member. You're still a member. All <laughs> it's right. Like, it's because it pisses them off. You know, no. it, it's, it's so much more fun that way. I mean, I could just very easily go, no, nah, that's all right. I'm not doing this anymore. But I think part of the message for me is making sure I hold the mirror up and say, guys, this is you're showing you're behind. This is what it looks like. This is not who we are. You know, we can have political discourse without political fights the way you're fighting and engaging. Yeah. Don't you own the libs. Own the libs for what? What are, you, what are you owning? When you own it, what are you going to do with it? You know, and, and that's the problem. And so I, I, I stay because fundamentally the core ideas still matter to me. They're still worth discussing and, and having debates with, with friends like you over public policy, whether it's health care or immigration. Or sure. And you know what? We may disagree um, at the end of the day, but we're going to agree to get to a point where we can at least talk about some solutions and maybe compromise on a few things, hopefully learn a lot in the process. And that's what we used to do. And so that's why I stay engaged the way I do. Yeah. And honestly, at the end of the day, that's what democracy is, right? It's a conversation. It's a give and take. Yep. And my dad used to say when he was in business, he used to say, you know, a good negotiation, both people leave the table a little unhappy, right? Because yep. everyone had to give a little. And that's the way it used to be. But it's not where we are now in this kind of winner take all, kill or be killed situation. Yeah, I don't think that's- saw that with the president who said when he, when he signed the debt deal, yeah, a lot of us left the room a little bit annoyed. And that means it was a good deal. Yeah. Yeah. That's what negotiating used to that's be. That's what it is. Yeah. And so we're talking about the party you are a part of, but it's not the party you used to be a part of. It's the conservative party by nature right now feels dead because the Republican Party no longer feels conservative. It feels extreme. And those of us who aren't for white nationalism or Christian nationalism or whatever the heck Trump represents, right. kind of, I'm sure people are feeling a little homeless right now. And as a very prominent Republican, what do you make of the Republican Party of today? Well, I, I appreciate that uh, very much because it is a lot like being homeless. Uh, in huh. fact, uh, I met, uh, had a meeting this morning with a group of high school students, uh, seniors from around the country, and was, was talking about this idea that, you know, it is true. People don't leave their parties. Their parties leave them. Uh, you, you learn over the course of time to sort of you know, walk together and, and there, there are things uh, that invariably you, you won't agree on and other things that you will. And, and, but you, you're kind of like in, in a groove, kind of a lockstep thing. 
Yeah. And when that party suddenly starts to move in a direction that doesn't feel natural, it doesn't feel responsive to your moment where you are in your in your philosophy and thinking, certainly your public policy. How how do you how do you begin to express that as you watch this separation occur? And you invariably you you realize, oh, they're leaving me. Because I, I still stand in that's why I call myself and always have since I really began in politics, a Lincoln Republican, because I studied the party's history. I knew as a young black kid, this was the political home for African-Americans, freely removed from um, slavery and living as free men and women, a party that didn't said, oh, well, now that we've sort of thrust them into this space with no economy to support them because they used to do all the work for everybody else, no one's working for them. How are they going to make money? First affirmative action program was 40 acres and a mule. Then that was locked in by the abolition of slavery in the 13th Amendment, the rights set forth in the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment, the Civil Rights uh, and Voting Rights Act. All of these things were things that tied my party to my community. Right. And then I watched my party basically cut those ties. And it was very it's been very hard to watch them roll back civil rights, voting rights, to watch them dismantle human rights when you look at the rights of women, that it's interesting that we still have to spell that out (laughs) in our constitution, that they have the right to freely decide what to do with their bodies, but okay, we'll play. And once everyone played, they were like, no, 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 sorry, we're just, no, we're not doing that anymore. And in fact, this is the way you're gonna do it. In six weeks, you get no more. Well, I just found that I was pregnant in the eighth week. What do I do now? So the party that's sort of stripping at those rights and those freedoms is antithetical uh, to its founding. And that founding was based on freedom, um, free will, which is that sort of libertarian element, as you know, that exists within the old Republican Party. You do you, boo, and I'll do me. And I'll raise my head up and make a noise when the government gets in between both of us, right? Mm-hmm. When the government decides to insert itself um, in the decisions we make on raising our kids and, and setting our businesses forward and, and, and making personal decisions around health. And so that, for me, has been the battle line inside the party, which, to be honest with you, Lee, didn't just start with Trump. No. This battle line started in the late 50s. It started to be drawn in the late 50s when the party sort of danced with the the John Birch Society, right? Um, And then you had um, uh, Goldwater denouncing civil rights by saying extremism um, in the defense of liberty is not a vice. Seriously? Uh, And and then, of course, Nixon with his 68, you know, white male Southern strategy. So we can see these elements being planted, these seeds being planted. And, you know, I just happen to be where I am at a time to sort of fight against the growth of those weeds as much as I can. And now I'm prepared to hand this off to the next generation uh, to take up the plowshares and, <laughs> and tear that sucker out. But that's it's right. Gonna some, it's going to take some work, as you know, it's going to take some work you talk about. And what I, I love about the value of the conversation you, you have is, it's, it's not saying, oh, you know, Dems are all that in a bag of chips and we're that. You're like, we need a two-party system. We need a viable multi-party system. That's right. These ideas can get vetted and worked out uh, and we can come to some consensus around how best to move forward 
under this veil of democracy. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that you say, you know, that this isn't something that just happened with Trump. You know, last week on the podcast, we had Dara Star Tucker Mm -hmm. and she is an amazing activist and she's doing a lot of social media work. And she's currently doing a new project called The Rise of Toxic Conservatism. And she also grew up in your party and as part of that party. And she sort of watched and she's doing everything from the John Birch Society all the way through. What sort of made the change? What made the adjustments? What got us to where we are today? Because it didn't happen overnight. Right. And ultimately, like, I wonder... You're, you still call yourself a Republican, but do you feel like the Republican Party of today, would you vote for those candidates or do you feel like the party itself, the one that you recognize, won't come back unless this one is decimated? You know, like something better has to rise from the ashes. Exactly right. Something better has to rise. I'd vote for Liz Cheney, not a Matt Gates. Got it. Right. Yeah, we can't we can't be run by these lawless, right. classless, rudderless so, liars. Exactly. So at the end of the day, you may disagree with Liz Cheney on on public policy, and that's that's totally legit. And I've been in those battles. I was in those battles over health care with Nancy Pelosi and Barack Obama in the 2010 cycle. Um, I won the battle. They won the war because at the end of the day. <laughs> Obamacare is the law of the land, constitutionally affirmed by a Republican-led Supreme Court, and it is in the bloodstream of our of our country as well as our our healthcare and culture. Um, and so that's that's the political process. You know, I'm not out here saying, well, you know, the Supreme Court got it wrong on on Obamacare. No, I trust I trust those nine justices to do the right thing. Then. Um, and need to do continue to do that if the system is going to work. What we see now with the ethics questions that have arisen around the court, with mm. the use of the selection process, which actually doesn't, again, start with Trump uh, or even Mitch McConnell's decision on Gar- Merrick Garland, but goes back to uh, the, the decisions that the Democrats made back in the 80s with with conservative uh, Supreme Court appointments uh, that they filibustered or 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 blocked. Um, and, and, that's and you're strong. talking about Bork, right? Bork. The Bork decision changed the nature of that game and, and, and how both parties approach the politics of the Supreme Court in a political way, if you know what I mean. And, and yeah. so and and in that case, your party won the war. Right. Exactly. Mm. You got it. That's exactly the point. And so the question now, as I put it to to these 17-year-olds about to be 18, and, and many of whom in the room will be voting for the president, the presidency the first time next year, how are you going to engage in this game? Yeah. Um, do you understand and appreciate the stake you legitimately have in it? Um, and why your voice, like the voice of David Hogg, for example, those young people who were born out of the crisis and tumult of, of watching their classmates die at the hands of a mass murder shooter, who rallied themselves not to just do the typical thoughts and prayers, oh my God, what do we do next? Poor us. They took power unto themselves. To, to do something about it, to try to change the laws in their state so that it wouldn't happen again. And so that's what this moment presents, despite the, the, the harried nature of the Republican Party. We'll have to deal with that inside the party. The country, meanwhile, has to stay focused on democracy. 
yeah. and has to stay focused on electing the men and women who hold that up first. Behold, before they hold up the D or the R, they have to show us that they're about democracy and they're about all of our freedoms, not just those of a selected few. And that's where voices like yours, mine, and others come in to help narrate that, massage it, um, give it some color, uh, and for people to then be informed and decide for themselves, what's the role I want to take on in fighting for this thing called democracy? Right. So in that in that vein, obviously I've had you on to talk about the Republican primary. Yep. And I... I feel like we're living in some version of George Orwell's 1984, right? The fact that Trump- A real messed be, up version. Yeah, like combined with uh, Handmaid's Tale, a little bit uh, Brave New World right. shown in there. It's like, right. it's a real nightmare. But the fact that Trump could be returning to the White House just feels like the beginning of the end for America. I just think, I keep thinking about that book and how right. in that book, the government of the country had a ministry of truth who was in charge of lies and propaganda. And for those who haven't read the book or don't remember it, the Ministry of Truth in Oceana decided what the truth was. They were responsible for anything they they saw as the necessary falsification of historical events to better fit the narrative they were choosing to create. And when I think about that book and how truth in that world was basically two plus two equals five, if that's what the government wanted. Mm -hmm. And then I look at how we might reelect this man who claims he didn't lose the election, a man who would rewrite our history so he didn't, a man who would pardon himself or remove any prosecutors who would come after him, who would lock up protesters and political enemies so he's no longer the criminal that he is. And the amount of people who would allow him to do that is terrifying to me. It feels like fiction, right? But this man has already said he's going to gut the government and replace career bureaucrats with loyalists. And yet, as you and I record this, he has the majority Republican support across the country. So what are we even doing here? Um, what we're doing here is <clears throat> we're doing what you just did, connecting it to something familiar, mm. something understandable, um, we are we are an age that seeks out entertainment as 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 knowledge and information. Uh, we are an age that discounts truth and facts if it gets in the way of the entertainment. Right. And so it, it's incumbent then to be as clarifying using the medium most familiar to everyone, which is Donald Trump's strength. Yeah. Right to help them understand the truth from the fiction, the lies from uh, the reality that they're living. That's the first part. The second part is there are a lot more people out here, Lee, who want that world. There are a lot more people out here who want that to happen than we're willing as a complete society to admit. We don't want, we, we want, it's easy. It is so easy to go, oh, those damn Republicans that, you know, those right ring, right wing ideologues, those crazies. Let me tell you the number of Democrats that I've met who like Donald Trump and support Donald Trump. Really? The, the number of independents that the first, the first, let me tell you where I first met some of them. <laughs> you don't like this. I'm not at the like Democratic this. National Convention in 2016, I met my first, my first Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump voters, and they were five women from the great state of California. 
Yeah, populists like populists, though, right? I mean, they you like do. the easy speak, you like the simple talk, you like they the I'm going to fix it stuff. Yeah. And the mistake we make, Lee, is that we put them in boxes instead of in, in sort of individual boxes and put them up on shelves and think that they're not somehow connected. They are. Mm -hmm. That's why I've been trying to tell my friends on the left, Democrats, I don't care where you are, independents, whatever. The reality of it is it's not just about this hard right wing. Yes, they are create, they're creating the form and substance of the narrative. But a lot of people are, it's like, it's like pudding. A lot of people eating the pudding. <laughs> they didn't make it, but they sure are enjoying it. <laughs> Oh, Lord. And so that's our truth right now. The truth is, how do we address that? Because Donald Trump picked up seven, almost eight million more votes than he did in 2016, in 2020. Yeah. Tell me where those people were. Who are they? They weren't all Republicans. Not that many Republicans in the country to make up that kind of number. So the question then becomes, there must be something else. Right. There must be something else, something else that Trump is speaking to that is beyond partisan, that has a crossover appeal to it, that's drawing people in that you would not otherwise say. And that's why I say to folks when I speak in, in front of audiences, I go, y'all know who they are. You won't go to their house for Thanksgiving dinner anymore. You won't invite them over for Christmas anymore. You know who these people are. They're no stranger to you. You know that uncle who never voted in an election suddenly said to you in 2016, yeah, I think I'm going to vote this election. Really? Yeah. Why? You never bothered to ask him why. And when you found out he voted for Trump, you completely discounted him. And the lesson for me came early in that political season when I watched this focus group and when I, when I heard a, a white female mother of two living in New Hampshire when asked the question why she was supporting Donald Trump said, because he's just like me. In what world is Donald In Trump just like a white suburban mother of two from New Hampshire? And until we crack the answer to that question, we're always gonna be bouncing back and forth in this bubble where you're gonna be focusing on all the wrong stuff. Mm. Oh, it's the Republican party. We, we fix that, we solve the problem. No, you won't. Because it'll just pop up, as you note, rightly noted, populism is populism. Right. And it'll pop up somewhere else. And everybody's going to be shocked and awed <laughs> when it does. And I'm telling you now, it's here. Don't be shocked and awed by it. Deal with it. Yeah. We're such a reactionary people. We need to do more proactive work for yeah. sure. And ultimately, I think you're right. I mean, I, I say all the time that we need to be talking to our people, all of our people. You know, the person at the dining room table, you need to have those awkward yes. conversations where you question things. And it doesn't need to be some sort of militant, you know, I'm fighting with you kind of thing. I think curiosity helps a lot. Over time, we talked to my in-laws, we talked to my own parents, we changed the way they looked at things. And I think that's a, a longer dialogue and a longer conversation yeah. that people have to engage in over time. I don't think you went into those conversations with people close to you with a fighting mentality. Right. You went into those conversations with a, hey, can can we work through this? Yeah. Can we can we figure out why you're looking at this this way and I'm looking at it that way? Um, just so if nothing else, I understand, right? So you're taking on some of the onus, some of the burden. You're not putting it all on the other person to explain themselves, which is what I resent about what's happening inside the GOP. 
they look at someone like me and they want to put the onus, the burden on me to explain why I don't support Donald Trump. And my response is, I haven't moved. You have. I I saw crazy (laughs) before you did. You moved into it. So you need to explain to me why I'm wrong, why, why this man who is salivating after Vladimir Putin when we were the party that called out the USSR as the evil empire under Reagan, why, why now we're now doing that? Right. Why, why you're elevating Donald Trump over Abraham Lincoln, the founder right. of the party. You need to explain to me as a Lincoln Republican why I'm wrong, because in my view, nothing's changed for me it clearly has for you. So why am I explaining? Right. Yeah. <laughs> why am well, I, I mean, the I rhino? Think, no, exactly. And I think it's hard now because it's not the Republican Party. You no, are the, you know, it MAGA. is the Trump Party. It's yes. not, it's MAGA. You yeah. ran the RNC. This is not the same party you ran. Not these aren't, all. you know, these aren't the conservatives you were talking to. These are extremists. And Ron DeSantis is trying to be just as extreme as Trump, maybe even more so. But it turns out he's just a terrible candidate, right? Like he's a terrible person. He's a terrible leader. But he's also just a god awful candidate. Like he's a cruel, mean little bully who would be nothing without the money behind him. And he clearly can't lead very well. And he's running Florida into the ground. And yet he's second place, right? Second place to run the country. So uh, speaking of pudding, I mean, you mentioned pudding. So I I can't think of Ron without pudding anymore. But what's your take on DeSantis? Glass jaw, thin skinned. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, never been hit will fold like a cheap suit suit when he is. Yeah, that's it. Uh, all the bluster around, you know, using props like uh, critical race theory, Disney, trans children, the I mean, woke mob. It, it's the woke mob. It's bad enough for these for these young adults growing into their sexuality, um, confused by it. And they ain't they ain't a human being on this planet, not one, who at some point was not confused about their sexuality during their development. I'm sorry. It's nature's way of having you check everything out. And it's nature's way of saying, okay, let's get it all figured out together, right? And everybody lands where they land. It's called nature. Um, but to then demonize and criminalize them um, the way he has to me, is probably one of the more offensive aspects. It, it is it is akin to what Trump did in his administration in penalizing parents by putting their children in cages. Can you imagine? Um, and and But what was more galling to me were the parents who applauded it. And Same. I'm like, oh, really? So you, you freak out when the police want to put your kid in jail for drinking too much. And here you're you're applauding an immigrant parent who's lost their kid at the border and watching that kid be put in a, in a cage and them sitting being sent back home. And you're like, yeah, more of that. They so, freak out with a book, My Shadow is Purple. Yes. You know, let alone taking your child away from you, you know? Right. Like exactly. So that that's the Ron DeSantis ethos that that he's pushing out there. And what Ron DeSantis has found out on top of being a god-awful candidate is that his policy, his his views don't translate outside of Florida. I knew they never would. 
I just, I just, I was telling people inside the party, I said, y'all know this, this train is not even going to get out of the station, right? I've seen too yeah. many candidates like him. I've worked with too many candidates like him. And he doesn't have the kahunas to take on Trump. He won't. He just doesn't. I'm sorry. I can't help it if it, you don't. That's not my problem. But he doesn't. And he's not going to. And you know why he won't? Because he knows fundamentally and understands one thing. He was created by Trump. And no matter how much at the end of the day you think you're better than the creator, you're not. You're not. You're not. I always say he came to office on the sheer power of pandering, right? Like he he would be nothing without Trump. And Trump calls that out directly. You know, Direct. I think the billionaires supported him because they thought of him as kind of Trump light. As Rick Wilson says, Trump through the car wash, right? But yeah. at the end of the day, Ron is a puppet to his wife, to his donors, to his ambition. I mean, say what you want about Trump, but he's no one's puppet, right? He's his right. own man. He's a lying, right. cheating, narcissistic, probably rapist criminal, but he's his own man, right? Right. And, right. Uh, <laughs> you know, a, and I... As a man can be described, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> but I think at the end of the day, I, I don't think Ron has a chance to be the nominee. I mean, Trump's already going after him head to head and he's tiptoeing around the edges. I don't think he can bring it home, but I also thought Donald Trump wouldn't win. So what do I know? Do you think but, he can bring okay, it home? Okay, so, so don't do that. Don't do that. No. Can, I, can I disabuse you of that notion? Absolutely. So... As you know, I'm up in Canada for the month and I was just at my best friend's cottage over the weekend and they collect all of their food scraps in a little bucket that they keep on the counter. And of course I said to them, do you know what you need? You need a Lomi. For those of you who listen to my show will know that I am obsessed with my Lomi. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns food scraps into dirt in under four hours. Just like my friend and her family, we know that we make too much garbage and want to do our best by the environment. But I'm pretty sure our best isn't that weirdly smelly compost bin underneath your sink, or even what Beth had, a cute little container on her counter that they had to take outside to a composter every night, but be careful because it was the cottage that they didn't put anything in it that would attract bears or raccoons. Which is why they need the Lomi. All these food scraps, even the fish, would be turned into nutrient-rich dirt that they could feed to their plants. They're already doing the hard work of composting. The Lomi would just make it quicker and cleaner. Food waste makes up a huge portion of our personal carbon footprint. By reducing the amount of food we send to landfills, we reduce the amount of methane we put into the air. So if you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make cleaning up after dinner that much easier, then the Lomi is not only perfect for my BFF, it's perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash politics girl and use the promo code politics girl to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to lomi.com slash politicsgirl and use the promo code politicsgirl at checkout. I really wouldn't pitch this product so hard if it wasn't so great. Lomi.com. Did you know your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality? If you wake up too hot or too cold, then you might want to check out Miracle Made bed sheets. Inspired by NASA, Miracle Made uses silver-infused fabrics to make temperature-regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. The silver-infused sheets also prevent up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets. Plus, Miracle sheets are just really nice, without the high price tag of all those other luxury brands. So see for yourself. Go to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl. If you order today, you can save over 40% off by using our promo code politicsgirl at checkout, and you'll also get three free towels and an extra 20% off. That's a great deal. And Miracle is so confident in their product that it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep today with Miracle Made. 
Go to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl and use the code politicsgirl to claim your three free towels and save over 40%. That's trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl. Talking to people like my guests, I'm sure you can understand it's kind of important that I'm at the top of my mental game. But you don't have to be interviewing incredibly smart people to want your brain and your body fueled and feeling good. So if you're busy and constantly on the go like me, you might want to try Mosh, a protein bar made for your brain. Whether you're at the gym or stuck at your desk or on the road, Mosh protein bars are the smart snack to keep your brain and body up to the task. These high-protein, no-sugar-added, GMO-free protein bars have no gluten and are the perfect way to keep healthy and energized. Mosh bars come in six flavors, and each one includes 12 grams of protein, as well as ingredients that support brain health, like lion's mane and collagen and omega-3s. Plus, each bar has only 160 calories and one gram of sugar. It's a guilt-free snack for your brain and body. Mosh bars were founded by Patrick Schwarzenegger and his mother, Maria Shriver, who are on a mission to make a difference. And they're donating a portion of all the proceeds from Mosh bars to support brain research at the Women's Alzheimer's Movement at the Cleveland Clinic. So don't settle for some mediocre snack when you can nourish your body and your mind with the fuel it needs to succeed. Head to moshlife.com slash politicsgirl to save 20% off your first six count trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on your first trial pack, which includes all six flavors at M-O-S-H-L-I-F-E dot com slash politics girl. This is good people doing good things for good reasons. May there be more of them out there. Moshlife.com. Donald Trump in 2016 is not Donald Trump in 2024. Okay. So what, or, or anything like that. So the idea that, well, I didn't think Donald Trump would win in 16, therefore that means DeSantis could. No, it doesn't. Because Donald Trump brought to the table something that DeSantis has not been able to do, none of them have so far. And that is to galvanize the, the, the GOP base in such a way that they moved off of their traditional purchase. They moved right. away from the from the the bushes. They moved away from the uh, general kind of direction the party was moving. The Marco Rubios, the you know folks like that who filled these sort of traditional voids within side and within the party, which goes back to a whole nother conversation we can have about what happened after Reagan. But the reality, yes. <laughs> you know, right? I do know, I do know, but that's an entirely different uh, conversation. An entirely different conversation, <laughs> and that's another podcast in which I am happy to come back and spend time in your kitchen. That but would be amazing. the The reality of it is, we cannot make the mistake of thinking that. Well, you know, I didn't think Donald Trump was going to win. Therefore, no, those individuals that come after therefore aren't Donald Trump, right? Right. And they, 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 they don't show what Donald Trump showed in 2016. They don't have what Donald Trump had to galvanize that that base to move off of a Jeb Bush who was leading in the polls um, and or Marco Rubio or Chris Christie. All of them folded into Donald Trump's backyard. Right. And lined up behind him. Yeah, his gravitational pull was too strong for any one of them to stand on their own against None him. of those individuals are going to line up behind one of these other good folks other than Trump. So do you see Trump as the nominee, even if he's wearing an ankle monitor and can't yep. leave Mar-a-Lago? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. Absolutely. And and here's here's a kicker for you. Not only do I see him doing that, but I see him engaging in such a way that the numbers could be tight going into that general election. 
Because what, again, the press and the politics are not accounting for are those voters who do not show up in your polls, those voters who do not play your reindeer game on tracking them and identifying them and getting them to express openly and publicly who they're supporting. And to the extent that you do, they will lie to you. Yeah. As they did in 2016. Right. They lied to you. Um, And the reality of it is, and I I put a pin in this and I remind people, this is the conversation I have with the folks over at No Labels. It's the conversation I have with Democrats. The reality of this, Donald Trump did not lose the presidency in 2020 by 8 million votes. Donald Trump lost the presidency by 78,000 votes spread over three states. Yeah, I know. It's very different. Because we do not have the popular uh, popular election of the president, right? We have an electoral college system. And the strategy for Democrats has to be focused on where they're going to get and overwhelm their electoral college vote in the 2024 cycle. It's not getting turning out more popular vote. It's turning out the vote in, in those states so that you're not lo- winning by 78,000 you're winning by 378,000 votes. That begins, that is the best anecdote from the, from the BS that's going to come after that election when you can show, oh, no, 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 we no, we, we overwhelmed the Electoral College because in these three, four, five states, the, the total vote was five times what it was four years ago when Donald Trump got his ass kicked, right? right. And that's, that's, that's the truth here. Donald Trump and his team know that. We need to find 78,000 and one vote. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, let me ask you, I mean, all the people who seem to be running for the Republican nomination are doing their best not to step on Trump's toes so they don't alienate his base. Right. But what's the play there? I mean, to be a great supporter of him while they wait for him to like die or fall in a criminal <laughs> hole so deep he can't cheat his way out of and then just sort of swoop in and take his voters? Is that is that the play? Or it's what are we doing with these other candidates? I mean, I'm having trouble seeing a world, like you said, where it's not Trump. So let's talk about these potential candidates. I mean, I don't think we need to go too much into them because I don't think they have much of a chance, but we should right. at least talk about them. And people should keep in mind as we go through this that there are far higher hurdles for these candidates to clear this year, even to get on the Republican debate stage. And it's very complicated and time consuming to qualify even for Republican primary delegates in each state. So some of these people that we talk about will never make it past being like an also ran. Exactly. So you've laid laid it out uh, precisely right, that there is more to it, uh, that the hurdles that have been put in place by the Republican National Committee are difficult and, and tricky. Uh, to amass uh, or overcome. Uh, I think that BS, I would never do that as chairman. Um, <laughs> I, I just, look, I'm, I'm like, okay, get on. if you get on the stage, you get on the stage and right. uh, you do your thing. I remember telling Reince in, in the 2016 cycle, you know, you got to break this thing in a way that you, you're giving an advantage to Trump that he otherwise wouldn't have, number one. Right. The press is giving him free reign by giving him all the all the publicity he needs. You've got to counterbalance that for on behalf of these other candidates. So you've got to create the platform in which they have the same elevation as he does. And so Trump is the still the titular head. God only knows why. He shouldn't be, but he is. 
titular head of the GOP. So he's not an incumbent president. So that comes off. He's no different than any other candidate. That's your baseline. Right. Um, so then if that's your baseline, how am I going to stage this? I'm not going to sit there and go, well, this guy, you know, who's sitting here with $250 million, we're going to now require everybody to have, you know, at least 40,000 donors from, you know, 20 different states. And, and- if, if, I can inter- if I can interrupt for a second, just so people know, because not everyone is in the know, I want people to remember that in the 2016 Republican primary, when Donald Trump really came on the scene, it was total chaos, this debate. It was like varsity JV league debate situation where some people made the prime time debate and other right. people were kind of at, at the, the kiddie table. table. Right. And so this time the RNC is trying to have more criteria for who qualifies for the debate, but it's getting a lot of pushback from certain campaigns because it has the appearance that they're kind of rigging the rules of the game to favor the establishment or corporate candidates with them picking the winners and losers. And I, I understand there has to be some rules and some criteria, but this year's criteria is set by the RNC directly, which is a shift from the last open primary uh, when the television networks and cable outlets holding the debate were the ones that set the parameters. So in the first debates, everyone was allowed to debate. They just right. used polling polling averages to identify who the top 10 would be in, in prime time. Right. This year, um, if people don't know, in order to participate in the August 23rd debate in Milwaukee, candidates have to have received campaign contributions from at least 40,000 unique donors, which is actually a pretty high number, right? It's a very high number. Right. And then they also have to have received at least 1% support in three national polls or 1% support in two national polls and 1% in early state polls from Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, or South Carolina, which are the pre-Super Tuesday states. And then those polls have to meet RNC requirements. And the potential candidates are being asked to sign a pledge, agreeing not only to not participate in any RNC-sanctioned debates during the election cycle, but also a loyalty pledge to support whoever is the eventual Republican nominee. And I can kind of get my head around the 1% support in polls. That seems to make good sense to me. But the 40,000 unique donors really does favor the candidates who are generating a lot of online donations using that extremist rhetoric and the scare Mm -hmm. tactics. Um, And no one seems particularly keen to sign that loyalty pledge. I mean, Trump says he has no interest in signing anything like that. He's not even sure he wants to participate in the debate because why would he bother? And he has no interest in supporting any nominee but himself, right? And so I know it's possible that no one even signs the RNC's pledge. What's your take on that? Uh, I suspect everyone will sign. Um, (laughs) They'll all get in line at the end of the day. They'll they'll sign, but they'll lie about it. They're not going to... You know, Chris Christie, Chris Christie said he's going to do exactly what Donald Trump would do. And that says to me, he'll sign it, but he's not. If Donald Trump's the nominee, he's not going to back it because Donald Trump is not Donald Trump's not going to sign. And because Donald Trump won't sign, Donald Trump's not going to be at the debate. Right. Not because he didn't sign, but because he's already told us, I don't plan. I don't see a need for me to do that. That's how he covers himself for not signing the debate. I told you I wasn't planning to come. What do you? What are you? Why are you complaining? I didn't sign. It didn't matter whether I signed it. I was even if I signed it, I wasn't coming. So well, you kind of have to understand where he's coming from, right? I mean, by skipping right. the debate, he avoids any chance for anyone to take a shot at him. He's right. now floating the idea that he's going to do some competing event on the same night, like a rally do. or an interview. He'll definitely do. do that, right? That he will do, and and he'll he'll he will create a split screen in which his Fox own and you know other audience 
uh, Newsmax audience will will watch him, um, and everybody else is going to be trying to you know imagine the debate without Trump on the stage. You know, everyone is you know the press is gearing itself up to a Chris Christie Donald Trump moment on on the and it, that ish ain't happening. <laughs> it's just no, it's not they happening. They want it. And, and, they and, want and it. Donald Trump knows it. It's not happening. But he's going to milk it. He's going to feign, oh, yes, I'm interested. And, you know, uh, this is an opportunity and I'm looking forward to debating people. But we've already seen he's flipping out, you know, because you've got the governor of Iowa who won't endorse him after he endorsed her twice. And and now he's all upset about that because that's Trump. That guy is not going to go into a room and have people challenge him. Yeah. What you're right about the fingers on the scale with the RNC. You're right about um, the the emerging narrative around these candidates and how they then tackle this space. What do they do? They do nothing because unless they are. Here's the question I've I've put out publicly to all of them and and to some individually: Are you prepared to lose the primary in order to win a general election? And the answer to that question tells me whether or not. You have the potential to be the nominee. And and the answer's got to be, if you want to be the nominee, yeah, I'm prepared to lose the primary. I'm prepared to take the wrath of the of the Trump base in order to prove the validity of my campaign and the direction I want to lead this party. I'm willing to take that fight to him directly and take him out. And so far, there's only one candidate who seems to be doing that. And that's Chris Christie. Uh-huh. Here's the part B that I asked Chris. All right, so you're prepared to do that. What's your strategy with with respect to that Trump base and the rest of the GOP? Because you've got to then say, all right, look, Trump makes, Trump's base is what, 35% of the entire base, Mm -hmm. right? So that means there's 65% of the Republican base out there that's tappable. Go back and look at the numbers. Data doesn't lie. You can't fudge the number of people who turn out at an election, in any given election, right? And it shows, it will show you for both Democrats and Republicans, roughly 20 to 25% of their base shows up in a primary on average. 20 to 25%. That means there are a whole lot of people who aren't voting. So if I'm a candidate running against Trump, my first plan is I want that, I want to tap into that 65%. I'm not going to sit here and waste my time trying to pine over a base that's not going to vote for me. If I'm Mike Pence, why would I do that when I know they wanted to hang me? <laughs> right? It's so a what solid question. <laughs> I'm, right, exactly. I'm going to go go to appeal to those folks, Republicans like Michael Steele, and say, I need you to show up and pull my name on election on, on primary day. I need right. you to go to the polls in Maryland on primary day and vote for me because I'm the guy who's going to take us where we were once in the in the land of mourning in America, in the land of of, you know, strong national defense and and a smaller, you know, workable government, et cetera, et cetera. That, that's me. That's what I want to do. Yeah. Um, and, and and that's and, what we're doing right now. I mean, that's really what actual viable candidates need to be doing. And for people that don't understand the system like Michael does. There's kind of three stages, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's kind of three stages in a presidential nomination. We're in right now what people call the invisible primary, which lasts from the spring of this year until the first votes are cast in February of next year. 
right. in the Iowa caucus. Yep. And during this period, which is called the invisible primary, candidates are out here raising money, they're building campaign staffs, they're wooing the base or wooing the other 60%. And then we on the outside, we draw a lot of conclusions that are often wrong, right? And right. then <laughs> and then Trump is clearly- Right. Why you don't make too many assumptions right in this and invisible primary phase. Polling. Anyone doing national polling now is is pulling something on you because national polling means nothing. It is not an indication of anything. National polls, just so you know, Lee, and for your audience to know, yeah. national polls do not matter until the first week after Labor Day 2024. And here's why. Voters then tune in on who they're going to give their vote to for right. president. Because nationally, what happens at that point is early voting starts, vacations are over, kids are back in school, and mom and dads begin to focus on the things that affect their pocketbook, that affect their view on the world, that affect their view on these candidates. Anything between now and then is just gummy bears, right? It tastes good. But it's, at the end, kind of hard to chew. But it still tastes good. Right. And I'll eat some of it anyway. But nutritionally, it's not doing anything for me. Um, the good stuff doesn't come till later. Right. So we're watching the national polls post-Labor Day 2024. Until go. then, we're dealing with, A, the phase we're in now, invisible primary, which Trump is clearly winning. But he also comes with a lot of baggage and issues, right? So there's just as many people that hate him as love him. And his message is tough for a general election. Stage two of this primary season is, you know, about five to six weeks long. It's when we start early voting in the primaries before Super Tuesday. So right. that's that's going to be those four states, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. And despite the fact that those states are kind of small when it comes to the amount of delegates that you actually need to win the nomination, I think you need 12,034 um, mm -hmm. And those st states account for like 138 delegates, but it sets the tone. Those four states set the tone. So if someone else wants to come along and gobble up those states and make Trump maybe not look like the winner, that could change the game. And then step three is the nominating process. So it's critical because it takes place in kind of the three months um, after those four states where they, you kind of run around the country as a candidate um, trying to get delegates from the other 46 states. And each state has a different kind of system and momentum here is the most important, right? It's more important than money. And that's where people are online all the time. They stop they stop the handshaking in the local campaigning and they basically get on every TV and radio station and try and get in front of as many people as possible. So if someone other than Trump catches fire during that point, and they, they'll amass huge sums of money thanks to internet fundraising and free press that that kind of momentum gives you. And so, like, we haven't even talked about these other candidates, but let me just ask you then, in that case that someone comes out of nowhere in that third phase or even in the second phase, what do you think of an out of left field candidate, someone that hasn't even declared? I remember I had Steve Schmidt on the show once and he mm -hmm. said, DeSantis isn't a threat. No one wants Trump light. What they want is Trump Red Bull right? And that's someone like Tucker. So what do you think of that categorically terrifying possibility? Because although unlikely, I can see that happening because yeah, that is, uh, and people are talking about it. You know, Tucker has the support of the base. He has the money. He has time on his yeah. hands. What do you think? Would he come out of nowhere? Or are we dealing with the people we're dealing with now? And really, ultimately, it's with. Trump. Yeah. T Tucker is like that, that weekend you you go hang out with your with your girls 
Um, and Michael, are you paying attention when I go and hang out with my girls? That's <laughs> I'm just saying. I know what Tucker is, baby. All right. You know, he's, he's, that, he's that weekend. And What and, stays in Vegas? Right. It stays in Vegas, stays awake in Vegas. But on Monday, you're getting up and going to work. Right. <laughs> you're, not, you're not bringing Tucker home with you. <laughs> so you don't think your party and the base of your party would turn to a younger, no, less it, indicted version it, no, of an oligarchy no, dictator? they love what the di- indicted one is giving them. All right. He's feeding them enough. He's feeding He's the red meat they want. Okay. Again, you 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 posed the question. Why why would I why would I go for light when I can have the real thing? Mm-hmm. I don't I don't if, if I can if I can still get Trump see because the way their calculation is there's a bet right now in all of these worlds that sort of intersect and make up MAGA. So by that I mean the GOP, Proud Boys, you know, white nationalists, Christian nationalists whatever you want, all those worlds. And this is why you hear the haranguing and the beating of the drums about the DOJ and the FBI, that you beat on them enough, you sensitize them enough, you make them look over their shoulders enough, second guess enough, pull up the the memo about not indicting a, a, a president of the United States, right? All that stuff that at the end of the day, they won't. They won't press that button that hauls him off to jail. Um, There is expectation that Judge Eileen down there in Florida is going to narrate this case in such a way that that one juror, that one juror, uh, innocent, right? There are a whole lot of things that are playing out here beneath this, this cacophony of crazy noises that are emanating from the press you know, with all the legal analysis and all the this and that and boom, boom. I come out of politics. I came out of law. I know that world and I know exactly what they're saying. And they're right by the letter of the law and the book and the process. Politics is something different. And the politics are like, okay, that let them do that. Meanwhile, we're going to do this. We're going to have in place election judges in states that you didn't know there, we put election judges that could potentially throw this thing into the house in 2024, who, you know, election officials, uh, voting officials, et cetera. The infrastructure is what they focused on. There are a lot of things that were learned from January 6th, not just by those of us arguing for democracy, but by the people who also tried to overthrow the government. They learned a lot. And so you don't see when Trump is saying, come to Mar-a-Lago and rally. They're like, we got you. We don't need to be there. We got you. You're good. We, we hold our powder. We don't need to expose ourselves. If you, if you want to have a great conversation, you haven't had him on already, I would invite you to invite Ben Collins from, from NBC News on to talk about that world and to expose your audience to what's happening off camera, off Facebook, in places that are too dark to even know how dark it is. And, and he can give you a better sense because that's, what his, that's, his, that's where his journalism is, tracking and following and writing about this stuff. And, but there's a lot more going on here. And so Trump, Trump is emboldened because he, has a, he knows his people. He knows how, he operate, how they operate. He knows what they'll do for him. I mean, look at Marjorie Taylor Greene and how she has whipsawed Kevin McCarthy to the point where 
Now you're the Freedom Caucus and kicked her out. <laughs> Did you ever think that would happen? No. no. But, but as part of the narrative, it just tells you just how fractured it is inside the GOP. Her allegiance is to Trump. Kevin McCarthy is the tool by which she executes, implements that allegiance. And it is so worried the Freedom Caucus that she's now getting in their face on some things. They're like, okay, no, we're time out. We're right. And 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 I'm like, yeah, that's part of this narrative that this thing is this thing, this thing is consolidating. It's not expanding. The power center is consolidating because when the trigger needs to be pulled, and I'm not just, I'm, this is not just, this is not like, oh, conspiracy. No, no, no. This is stuff that you see. They're doing it right out in front of you. And, and you don't recognize it for what it is because it's overshadowed by all these other sounds and images that, that distract you from what they're actually doing. And you need to focus on the fact that they have, they won elections in 2022. They did win some state elections, legislative county elections, certainly elections for school board, uh, boards of elections, um, you know, things like that. And what do you think they're just going to sit there and go, oh, okay, so now that we're here, we're going to do nothing? It's not how it works. So So how do those of us who believe in democracy, who believe in rule of law, who believe your vote should count and believe that everybody deserves to have their vote counted, how do we counter that if there's going to be one juror who lets Donald Trump off because the judge was in the bag. How do we counter that if the Supreme Court has already been corrupted to overturn the will of the legislative branch? How do we counter that if the state legislatures and machine mechanism behind the elections itself have been so thoroughly corrupted by people who are smart enough to do it? How do we counter that now with so little time? So you can't look at it in terms of limited time, you have to start by saying, <laughs> oh, I figured this ish out. Oh, got it. Now, oh, that's what you're doing. I see you. I see you. All right. Yes. The first thing, which is why I go, I, I you know, kind of like end where we began. That's why what you said and what you did, those now many years ago, it seems like, right? Um, from your kitchen is what we need to do. We need to pay attention and we need people to show people how to pay attention and to show them what they need to pay attention to, to strip off the partisan. I'll be honest with you. I didn't know your politics. I didn't know if you were a Democrat or Republican, but I listened to your words and your words are what resonated and aligned with my efforts to save the country from stupid from going off that cliff, recognize, oh my God, there's a, someone else out here understands this and sees it for what's happening right now in this moment right? and giving it proper context. So that's the first big important step. You're not limited by time in that regard. The second thing is, going back to what I said before, overwhelm the system with your vote. I asked this group of kids this morning, how many of you intended to vote in, in 2020? First election, I mean, and almost every hand in the room went up. That's good. 
And I went, I went, okay, for those of you who didn't know, you you like thinking about it? Uh what 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 are you doing? Let me know. I understand. I gotta feel I got you know, cause are you seeing what I'm seeing? Because this is on you now. I'm done. Baby, I'm done. I'm at the end of my drive on the road, right? I, I see my exit. It's been, right. You got highway ahead of you. What what are you doing? And so that's the next piece is getting people to understand how valuable this this priceless thing is known as the vote, just why they want to take it from you, mm-hmm. just why they want to limit it. I mean, think about it. If it didn't have value, do you really think they care? No. Do you really think they would strip out the Voting Rights Act if they didn't if it didn't have value? Of course it has value. They know. And so that's the second piece is overwhelming the system with your vote with your presence to remind them, I see you, I got you, I know what you're doing, I know what you did, I know who you've supported, I know who you've given your money to. You, you, think, you think they were worried about what they saw happen in Georgia uh, and, and, and Florida and elsewhere in the country when citizens use their power to remind corporate America, you know, I, 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 I buy your products. And if you if you're going to go out here and and act in a way that's counter to what I think is sort of baseline common sense and decency, you don't get to, you know, get my money. I'm not buying your products and they paid attention. So, yes, you know, diversity, inclusion, equity became a part of how corporate America began to assess where they're making their investments. And what was the response from right wing extremists? Oh well, we're you know we're gonna cut off Mickey's ears. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna put Mickey in jail, and you know we're gonna lock him up. And and so you see the reaction, which tells you your vote has more power, and your use of that power to remind everyone, not just the political class, what you're prepared to do as a citizen. Which is the third point: the three most important words you need to know: we the people. It is why Lee McGowan has the platform she has. It is why I had the honor of serving in elective office because we the people came to trust the value of our public presence and leadership, our public service. You are a public servant, Lee, and, and a lot of you, you may see yourself as a podcaster and, and you know a mom in her kitchen just kind of telling it like it is. But at the end of the day, you, what you're doing is a public service. And all of us get to act on that in our own individual way um, at this hour. And I hope they do by overwhelming the system with their vote. Yeah. Well, it's quite a moment in time we're living in, isn't it? Yeah. May you live in interesting times. Yes. Well, listen, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. I think it's hilarious. We didn't even get to the candidates, but I think that's almost appropriate because we all know who the candidate's going to be, right? And I just want to say thank you so much. We have to just keep that in mind. I think you've said it exactly right. We have to see what they're doing. We have to recognize that it's been happening for a long time. We have to overwhelm the system with our vote, and we have to know that we have a voice. And if we amplify that over and over again, you know, they won't get away with it. That's it. That, that's it in a nutshell. And it is the 2024 election right in front of you. That's 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 the medicine for that election. Thank you. Thank you Thank for joining you. me today, Michael. Absolutely. I hope you'll come back. Oh, oh girl, what are you talking about? I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> 
So that was Michael Steele reminding us that we need to be strategic. The press and politics are not accounting for all the voters who don't show up on the polls. That we've been focusing on the wrong things to solve the problem. Trump picked up votes in the last election and we need to consider how he did that. At the end of the day, we have to take the wool off our eyes and off of our people's eyes. We have to pay attention to our system being corrupted. We have to say, I see you, and I will come out to vote with everything in my power to overwhelm the system so you can't win, no matter how much the system favors you. We have to use our voices and amplify the voices of our fellow Americans to save our democracy. This is where we are now. I want to thank Michael for joining us today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Now go register someone to vote. At the end of the day, we're all public servants. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.